Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 19th of August with me, Ian Welsh. Recently, I spoke with Mass Director of Sustainability, Olivier Tichet, and Assistant Professor of Environmental Policy at ETH Zurich, Rachel Garrett, about the evolving role of smallholder farmers in supplying the palm oil sector and the risks that some farmers may be excluded from certain markets as buyers and brands demand ever greater supply chain traceability. And earlier this week, I caught up with Innovation Forum's Hannah Halmari to hear how the Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference on November 1st and 2nd is coming together. First, though, is some sustainable business news. Agricultural workers in the UK from Indonesia have been shown to be in debt for recruitment fees to employment agents, with levels up to £5,000 in some cases, according to an investigation by The Guardian. Workers at a Kent-based fruit supplier to UK retailers Marks & Spencer, Waitrose, Sainsbury's and Tesco have paid fees to secure employment alongside flights and visas. It is illegal for workers in the UK to be forced to pay recruitment fees to brokers in return for them finding jobs. The UK labour market has been put under intense pressure from Brexit, compounded by the war in Ukraine. 20,000 migrant workers came to the UK in 2021 from Ukraine alone under seasonal worker visa schemes. The fees are charged by brokers before the Indonesian migrants leave home and are recouped from workers, sending large chunks of their pay to the brokers every month. And the level of them means that there are risks of many of them being stuck in debt bondage. The UK farm and worker recruitment agencies deny any previous knowledge of the fees and the supermarkets have called for immediate investigation. The tragedy of the commons, where we individually treat commonly held assets without respect, has been most vividly plays out in the planet's oceans. Everything more than 200 nautical miles from the coast is treated as international waters, making up more than two-thirds of the world's seas and oceans. Of this, only 1% is currently protected, with the rest open to exploitation and pollution. There has been talk of an international high seas treaty for years, so far to no avail. However, the UN has been hosting a meeting in New York with the aim of finally resolving an agreement. Environmental groups say that the fate of the oceans for decades to come could be decided at this meeting, and been calling for binding measures to protect marine life and to reverse biodiversity loss. Already 50 companies have said they will protect up to 30% of the oceans by 2030, but without an international treaty, these pledges will have no legal backing. The inclusion of significant climate change-related legislation in the Inflation Reduction Act, which recently was passed by the US Senate, could mean reductions in the country's carbon emissions by up to 40% this decade, supporters of the bill have said. A total of $369 billion worth of measures include up to £7,500 in tax breaks for buyers of electric cars, significant compensation for communities impacted by fossil fuel pollution, and big investment in clean energy technology such as solar panels and wind turbines. As seems to be the case on every subject these days, when voting, the senators split 50-50 along political party lines, with the vice president casting vote required to pass the bill through to the House of Representatives. President Biden had pledged to return the US to centre stage on tackling climate change, and while the bill does not contain everything that might have been on environmentalists' wish lists, it is the most that the US has done so far to try and stall global warming. UK startup Clean Food Group, a biotech business developing a yeast-based alternative to palm oil, has attracted enough initial funding, £1.7 million, to bring the product to market. The lab-grown product uses microbial fermentation and follows a number of years of product development at the University of Bath. Next steps for Clean Food Group include development of a large-scale pilot plant and developing commercial collaborations to demonstrate the use of the alternative to natural palm oil in finished products. While the direct link to deforestation is of course removed by using the alternative, what's not yet clear is the life cycle analysis comparison of it with sustainably sourced palm oil. 
innovation forums autumn events include the next in our series on the future of plastics and packaging on the 11th and 12th of October in Amsterdam, with a focus this year on how business can build circular packaging solutions that deliver impact at scale. Among those already confirmed to take part in the conference sessions are business experts from Unilever, Kellogg, Mattel and Nestle. And our flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum returns on the 1st and 2nd of November, also in Amsterdam. As ever, the agenda will have an emphasis on open, candid debate and discussion. And we'll hear from the likes of Golden Agri Resources, Dole Food, Tesco, Natura, Kraft, Diageo and many more. To find out more about what's happening at the conference, earlier this week I spoke with Innovation Forum's Hannah Halmari. Welcome back to the podcast, Hannah. Thanks, Ian. Good to be back. Tell us how the event's coming together. Yeah, it's coming together really well. We've confirmed a number of fantastic speakers. And as you'll know, we've partnered with IDH on this year's conference. We're collaborating on bringing together the right people from business, policymakers, finance, NGOs, and key supply chain actors to really make this the go-to event for sustainable sourcing professionals. How has the agenda been developing then over the past few weeks? As you know, the conference looks at how business can tackle the most pressing and urgent challenges in commodity supply chains. And with a focus on forests, farmers, land and livelihoods, we're going to be discussing how the landscape approach can be used to build community resilience and tackle supply chain emissions. Alongside the main agenda, we're going to be running a series of focus and hands-on workshops. These are designed to deliver concrete insights and really detailed problem solving around some key issues. We currently have tailored sessions on smallholder agriculture, as well as a TFA-led workshop that will provide a comprehensive overview of the landscape approach. Do we have any newly added sessions or new speakers that have just come on board recently? We've recently confirmed a number of senior representatives from companies such as Diageo, Metro, Ikea, Tyson Foods, Natura & Co, Cargill, Tesco, World Bank, and many, many more. And you can find all of the confirmed speakers to date on the website. And any particular sessions, you mentioned the workshops, any particular more kind of regular conference sessions that have been added recently? Yep. So we've added in a quick fire case study session. So that's on day two. So that'll be looking at climate risk and adaptation and how to prepare farmers for the effects of climate change. So that's one that I'm looking forward to for sure. Absolutely. There's some really, really interesting sessions coming up, which I'm looking forward to as well. All right, Hannah, how can listeners get involved? So we still have places left at the event and you can register online. If you book before Friday, 2nd of September, you'll be saving 200 euro on your ticket. And please do get in touch with me at hannah.holmari at innovationforum.co.uk if you have any questions regarding the bookings or if you want to hear about our group booking discounts. And then we also do have a number of sponsorship opportunities available. You can learn more about these by contacting my colleague, Anita. It's worth reiterating that, of course, that given we are back face to face, there is a limit on the number of people that can attend. So we do have to cap at the number we can get into the venue. And typically this event sells out. So if you do want to come, now's the time to book your tickets so you can take advantage of the discount before the end of the month. All right, Hannah, nice to hear from you and we'll catch up again soon. Thanks, Ian. When we meet in Amsterdam in November, how companies engage with their smallholder farmer suppliers will be firmly on the agenda. To find out about a new collaborative smallholder farmer inclusion project, I spoke recently with Mass Director of Sustainability Olivier Tichet and Assistant Professor of Environmental Policy at ETH Zurich, Rachel Garrett. We're going to be talking a bit about smallholder farmer inclusion today. Why don't we get cracking with a bit of context to the organisations on the call? Olivier, perhaps you can give us a brief bit of context to Mus and Mass. Thanks, Jan. 
Well, Musimas is an integrated palm oil company. We are present from plantation all the way to functional products, so basically refining uh, oleochemicals, the whole supply chain. And we process quite a lot of palm products. About 10% comes from our own plantations, 90% coming from external producers, and that includes a lot of smallholders. And Rachel, give us a bit of context to your work at ETH. So I'm a professor of environmental policy, which means my research integrates both social science and environmental science dimensions. And we focus a lot on how to balance objectives to reduce deforestation globally with the needs of communities that are still developing their economies and smallholder farmers to try to find approaches to this that are both effective and equitable. ETH and Musumas have been collaborating on a project focusing on smallholder farmer inclusion. Olivier, Perhaps you can start the ball rolling on this in terms of giving us some insights into how you characterise the importance of smallholder farmers from the palm oil sector in general and from Musa Mass in particular. Well, the smallholders are more and more important in Indonesia in particular. So a couple of reasons. Of course, their share of the production. Today, they're about 40% of the planted area in Indonesia. It's a lot more in other countries. You have in, in Africa, some of the countries, it's almost exclusively smallholders. But in Indonesia, we are seeing continued growth for smallholders planting or converting from other crops to palm. Then mechanically more important, um, also they've been left aside a little bit by the industry, I think. For us at Mosimas, it's one of the pillars of our sustainability policy, better livelihoods, that includes smallholders. But also we've been working on smallholders for now, getting on, what, seven years, I think. A very large project on extension with the IFC, so the, the World Bank. And now we have developed, we have uh, evolved into another concept for what we call smallholder hubs, where we work at a jurisdiction level with the local governments on, uh, on extension services for smallholders. What are the specific challenges then that arise from having a large number of smallholder suppliers in the Panama sector? They are by essence small. They're also individuals. They have pretty low yields. So you have even more smallholders to achieve a certain volume. And they are for the most not in organizations. And they are entering our supply chain through multiple pathways or multiple suppliers, and they are sometimes going through multiple intermediaries to get to our suppliers. What's also interesting is that they come in and they come out of our supply base at will, basically. They are free, so they can be in today, be out tomorrow. So it makes for a difficult relationship for us with them. We are not their direct buyer. We're not their first point of contact. So how do we make it so that we can influence their practices? But how do we make it so so that we can measure the impacts of what we are doing? We have good experience, I would think, in extension work. And we have the time, which is most important. We are ready to invest a lot of time. But are we really achieving what we think we are in a durable manner? And how can we further improve that's how we're changing the norms. That's, I think, is where we still are not entirely sure. We need people who are much better than we are at that. Is there then a lack of data, a lack of monitoring? What are the challenges there? Data is always an issue to access. We have a model. What we do not know is how do we measure the actual impact? It's quite complicated. Like I said, we have these smallholders. They're not linked to us on a permanent basis. So how do we, when we have brought something in, a, in an area which... We are touching then inside and outside of our supply base. How do we then measure the impact? There are so many factors. We usually tend to have an approach where we try to do what we're good at. We think we are not bad at doing extension work, bring good practices, include sustainability aspects to it, try to support organizations. But are we really achieving something? Are we just improving things? Or are we actually achieving 
real change, durable change? Are we just helping a little bit or are we really changing things? Rachel, perhaps you can give us a bit of detail as to the focus points of your research into smallholder farmers. And for you, what do you see as the principal challenges for smallholders? So our research uses many different types of analysis to understand how smallholders are affected by these company policies that are focused on zero deforestation and forest restoration and other forest outcomes. Since these policies are implemented in many different ways by different companies, or even within a company, we want to understand which types of implementation can actually avoid negative outcomes to smallholders, such as market exclusion from the existing supply chains or additional costs in the process of being compliant with these policies. We also seek to understand if these policies, when they're actually coupled with extension programs, which types of extension programs in particular, or coupled with different types of framings around the collective benefits that farmers can see from conserving those forests, whether or not those approaches can help smallholder farmers while aiding these conservation efforts. And this is exactly the nature of our collaboration with Moose and Moss. We're working together to test in an experimental setting with rigorous counterfactual analysis, whether or not certain forms of implementation of the no peatland, no deforestation, no exploitation program within the oil palm sector can result in better outcomes than other approaches. So it's exactly this measurement problem that Olivia mentioned. We can do that in a really robust way with our approaches and by working together. Can you give a bit more detail on that or perhaps give a specific example of something that you are doing alongside Moose and Mass to deliver that? So we haven't rolled it out yet, but the idea is to use this treatment and control approach that has been done across the scientific community where certain groups in a randomized way to the best to the extent possible get treated with a specific type of implementation approach. Some of these are just a simple approach of the traditional NDPE policy, and some of them are then coupled with additional extension and additional framings. And then we can measure those outcomes relative to the control group of farmers that didn't receive any of those treatments. And assuming, and that's the whole basis of this approach, is that you try to make sure these groups are otherwise the same. And then you can measure over time relative to the baseline what happened to those farmers and what happened to forests in those areas and whether or not you see a different outcome in the areas that were treated. So that's the whole approach. It hasn't been possible to date because nobody has actually done this in this experimental way. And instead, we're trying to just catch up with what's happened historically and try to tease out those effects. So how much of this is driven by desire from buyers of palm oil for traceability? So I think traceability is a big part of the story, but it's not the only one. So there would be these smallholder outcomes, whether or not you had to trace all the way down to your supply chain, because in the end, they're going to be judged by what's happening in the broader region, regardless. But traceability makes all of this more difficult because traceability is very challenging. And if you can't trace, if that's already a clear objective that you can't meet, then you're going to have an incentive to exclude the farmers that you can't trace, even beyond your objectives of meeting your zero deforestation goals. Olivier, how much then, from Muzumasi's perspective, is this traceability challenge becoming ever greater? I mean, is there a risk from your perspective that some smallholders will be excluded from certain markets if traceability has to be implemented fully? 
Yes, indeed, that is trading. Uh, but basically, it's where the best or the better is the enemy of the good, if you want. We look at traceability. It's not an end to itself. It has to serve a purpose. So the point is also, do you need to have that absolute traceability to achieve your goal? I'm not of that mind. I believe that we will reach full traceability, but we should not get distracted. It's not the main goal. The main goal is to have no deforestation, no exploitation as well. The most immediate one now is no deforestation. That's actually our main goal. We should not get distracted by trying to pursue 100% traceability. We have to increase, but it's not the main goal. So it's how indeed we change at a landscape level. It will out one landscape at a time, let's say. Why do I say that? Because deforestation happens today, but the palm bunches will enter our supply chain, let's say, if that deforestation is for palm, at best three, four years down the road. So it's today that we need to stop deforestation, not when it's already entering our supply chain. That's very tricky with smallholders which is why we have to approach them not one by one by those who are already into palm, but by trying to see what we are bringing through the extension work for palm smallers is also a way of explaining to them what are the impacts, what do you need to be a better farmer, what do you need to have better yields. And it's not only about where do I put the fertilizer, where do I put the pesticides, how do I harvest? That's part of it. The other part is what are the conditions I need around me so that I can have good yields? Do I still need clean water? How do I minimize impacts? in particular on water, let's say, because water will work for others. It will also have the impacts on their communities. So it's, it's a broader level of education, if you want. I think that that's what our friends, the academics would call a non-based change or intervention. I never get it right. But uh, that's a bit what we're trying to achieve. We need better farmers in many, many senses of the term. And it's not just for show. We need them to have better yields. We need them to have better impacts. We need them to avoid deforestation. That's a better farmer. Rachel, how much do you share this view that there's been too much of a focus on traceability for traceability's sake? Yeah, I agree completely with that framing. It's a means to an end and, and not the end. And I think that traceability and transparency are good tools to achieving many social goals. But like Olivia already said, don't lose sight of what the actual goals are. I also think that forcing individual companies on case by case basis to do this traceability without requisite complementary public policy support, especially in producing regions, is particularly challenging. And it can also lead to perverse outcomes in terms of then what happens next in those areas if all of the sudden a new policies are established by governments to require that cooperatives exist, or if some sort of social organizations are set up that don't make sense for anyone, then you can end up leading to fewer of the benefits being captured by farmers and more of them being captured by other intermediaries along the way. Again, focusing more on the goal of zero deforestation, but also, as Olivia mentioned, co-creating with farmers better management practices that help everybody. That's the goal. If you don't need individual farmer traceability to get to that goal, and instead you focus more on community monitoring systems and individual incentives and structures that promote better practices, to me, that would be a better place to spend our costs and our energy versus very costly individual traceability programs. But again, that doesn't mean we throw away traceability. I'm just saying, I think we agree that the emphasis shouldn't be on that as the goal itself. 
Olivier, given that many customers of yours are going to be demanding ever more that the palm oil that they are receiving from you is definitely deforestation-free, exploitation-free and also ungrown on peat or not destruction of any peatlands, wouldn't it just be easier for Muslim Mass to work with big suppliers that are certified deforestation-free? Yes, that would be the, the short-term solution, definitely. Short-term solution, you go to bigger actors. They're much easier to handle. We have the tools for that. They might still take a bit of time to get in line, but nonetheless, yes, it would be theoretically that would be a much better short-term solution. It's not the long-term solution. We cannot isolate the product palm from its producers. We cannot save the big producers and leave the smaller producers. At the end of the day, palm will still need to be here and it has to have better impacts. So we cannot leave one part of the production out. I'm not going to say we have a moral duty, but effectively we have a moral duty. Plus we have a practical duty. Our practical duty is to recognize there will be a need for more palm. It can come from more deforestation. It can come from more areas being grown or converted from other products. It can also come from better yields. And I, I think it's that third option, which is the most desirable because it will also sustain itself. I mean, we need farmers to be better farmers, like I say, I need them. And it, palm oil is a perennial crop. It's not something we can replant every year and find new farmers every year. So we need to have that long-term commitment of the farmers as well. So we cannot leave smallholders to the side. They are, I'm famous for saying, I think they are the future of our industry. I do believe they are the future of our industry. Maybe not tomorrow, but wait for another week. You'll see they're the future of the industry indeed. Given that context, and in fact, smallholders are an essential part of palm oil supply chain and are going to continue to be so, what are the impacts then of legislation that is moving towards taking a more due diligence, due diligence approach? Are we seeing unintended consequences playing out here that are going to potentially exclude some suppliers from markets? Rachel? So the due diligence policies, most of them still have an opportunity to be improved because a lot of them are proposals and very few of them have gone through. We've been consistently urging policymakers to make sure that the due diligence requirements include considerations for smallholder-friendly approaches and are matched by other components of a broader smart mix policy that actually includes capacity building and development support for these regions. That's not only a more equitable approach, but also likely to be a more effective approach. And just tangibly, it's important that engagement in improving smallholder conditions to control deforestation for example, through jurisdictional approaches in the medium term and long run is what should qualify towards the due diligence process, not just certification programs or traceability, et cetera. That all needs to be done in a coherent way so that, again, the short-term objective doesn't get in the way of the medium and long-term goals. To summarize, in case anybody gets just one message from it, it's that the import policymakers need to actually incentivize and encourage companies to stay engaged and improve practices in those regions through smallholder capacity building. Olivier, what's your view on the unintended consequences that may potentially flow from a broad brush, unthinking due diligence approach? I think Rachel has put it already very nicely. I would add maybe one thing, which is it's not only the policies are targeted at private companies. And I think it's missing the point that we cannot do that on our own. It has to be a mix of private enterprise, but also the, also the public sector. It has to be the governments as well. They have a lot to do. I'm not trying to pass the buck on them. I'm just trying to say they have certain functions, which are their functions, which are their roles. 
And we have certain roles also, and we have to respect both, and we have to use both. What we do, for example, in Osimas, where we support local governments, we respect the local government. We are not trying to replace them. We are just trying to improve their services and to get them also somewhere else. Because there are national action plans, there are regulations, can be confusing or difficult for some local governments. We can bring something to the table to help them out and do our part as well. Just get things moving in the right direction, get it a bit faster there, but again, with multiple actors. And I think that was maybe one of the big misses of the proposed regulation, at least in Europe, is that it seems to be focusing exclusively on the private sector, wanting an absolute result, immediate, and forgetting that things should be, like Richard said, you have to reward or you have to promote change. We still need to go through a certain transition to achieve what the regulation is about. It's not about diluting that regulation, it's about actually making it work. Perhaps in closing then, we can talk about what you're hoping from the outcomes of your collaboration. Your um, Muslim Mass and ETH and Zurich are working together on a five-year collaboration. So Rachel, what are you looking to find out or what are you looking to see over the next five years coming out of the research? We want to be able to actually measure the risks of certain approaches if they just focus on market exclusion mechanisms. And it's not that Muslim Mass has anything that's a very strict market exclusion mechanism. They already have a somewhat more advanced approach to be able to measure the risks of just doing an NDPE policy on its own. And second, to be able to measure the potential benefits of adding on additional components under this broader smart mix framing that we were just talking about that import countries can conduct. We also have this same concept with the multinational companies themselves that exclusion and compliance are one leg of this, but then training and building up values and meanings around the conserved forest within these agricultural forest landscapes are the other two components that are important. We would hope to be able to really assess and be able to identify what actually works and then we can go to companies and countries with this evidence, this very sound proof that certain approaches work better than others, because right now everybody's just testing everything and it's hard to say what works best. And in the meantime, we're spending a lot of time and a lot of money. So I want to be able to try to shortcut that a bit more and provide more evidence so that we can go about this in a better way in the future. And of course, NDPE is a no deforestation, peat or exploitation. Olivia, what do you want to add then to the outcomes you're hoping to see from Muslim Massey's perspective from the project? Honestly, not much to add. I just hope that the measurement will show that what we've done has had some positive results. That would be a big drawback otherwise. But if anything else, then it would say we've got to learn again. I'm sure that we'll, we'll find things we can do better. We'll have more complexity than when we started from. But so be it. So it's progress. And most important, like Rachel said, is that can help others to follow if what we do is right. Huh? If that can help others to believe that, that, yes, actually, it's the right thing to do. It's not just the Musimas thing. It's actually the right thing to do. We're very happy if others do it as well. That's perfectly fine. That would be a very good outcome. Get others to, uh, to follow or to, uh, to join us. So just to add on to what Olivia just said, he said a worst case scenario is that they find they've had no impact. What is really nice about this collaboration is we can start to say why. What were the exact mechanisms that led to the no additionality to no benefit? So then we can actually then close that loophole. So I think even in that case, there's hopefully a win-win for everybody involved. Thanks very much to you both for taking us through the project and its objectives. And I look forward to hearing more about the outcomes over the coming years. But for now, many thanks indeed to Rachel Garrett from ETH in Zurich and Olivia Tichet from Mass. Thanks to you both. 
As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. And don't forget that if you want to join either the Plastics and Packaging or the Sustainable Landscapes and Qualities Conference in Amsterdam this autumn, you can reserve your places now. Everything you need to know about those is available online. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye. <laughs>